Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a damaging leak ahead of Thursday's start of the UN Annual Climate Summit COP28 in Dubai from a whistleblower to the Centre for Climate Reporting, which reveals that the host and president of COP28, Sultan Al-Jabur, the CEO of Abu Dhabi's National Oil Company, plans to use the meeting to discuss fossil fuel exports with 30 foreign leaders. Joining us is Bill McKibben, a founder of the environmental organisation 350.org, who was among the first to have warned of the dangers of global warming. He is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College and the author of more than a dozen books, including the bestsellers The End of Nature, Earth and Deep Economy. His latest book is Falter, has the human game begun to play itself out? And we will discuss his article at his substack, The Crucial Years, UAE Corruption Beyond Description Means COP28 is Likely Over Before It Begins. Then we look into polls and indicate a dramatic shift among young Americans away from support for Israel to sympathy for the plight of the Palestinians as a result of the war in Gaza. Joining us is the pollster Shibli Talhami, the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, the Director of the University of Maryland Critical Issues Poll, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has advised every U.S. administration from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama, serving as an advisor to the U.S. mission to the United Nations, and as a senior advisor to the United States Department of State. He's the author of a number of books, including The Stakes, America in the Middle East, and The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion, and The Reshaping of the Middle East, and is the co-author of the new book, The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine? And we'll discuss his article at Brookings, Israel Loses Much of the Support It Gained After Hamas Attack. Then finally, with the Koch brother Charles Koch throwing his $5 billion political slush fund behind trying to elect Nikki Haley president in 2024, we will speak with an expert on dark money, Chara Torres Spellacy, a Brennan Center fellow and a professor of law at Stetson University College of Law. She has testified before Congress and has helped draft legislation and Supreme Court briefs and is the author of Corporate Citizen, An Argument for the Separation of Corporation and State and Political Brands. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Bill McKibben, the founder of the environmental organization 350.org, who was among the first to have warned of the dangers of global warming. He's the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College and the author of more than a dozen books, including the bestsellers The End of Nature, Earth and Deep Economy. His latest book is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? And he has an article at his substack, The Crucial Years, UAE Corruption Beyond Description Means COP28 is Likely Over Before It Begins. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bill McKibben. Good to be with you, Ian. How are you? Well, thanks, Bill. And what do you make of this revelation that uh, came out from the Center for Climate Research, documents that explode the whole game that's going on in uh, Dubai, uh, which exposes the fact that the Sultan al-Jabbar, the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, is, uh, according to a whistleblower who got hold of these documents, is that al-Jabbar 
and his colleagues plan to discuss fossil fuel exports with nearly 30 foreign nationals. So they're using the COP28 simply as a front to do oil deals. And their only excuse in responding to this damaging leak is that private meetings are private. So um, (laughs) I guess, I mean, is this good news or bad news? It's good news that the charade has been exposed, but it's bad news what these guys are really up to, right? Well, so let's be clear. This global warming talks uh, this year in Dubai have been dogged from the moment that the site was announced by the fact that there's something incongruous about the head of an oil company also chairing the uh, the global climate talks. Uh, you know, it's as if you had a you had a a wily fox in charge of a conference on loss prevention in hen houses, you know. Um, and so people have assumed that, <laughs> that, that the main point of this COP would be to greenwash things. But, you know, the fact that we now have the documents that show that, that, the, that the hosts for the climate talks were using the climate talks as a pretext to be meeting with countries around the world to sell them more oil is I mean the final proof that uh, of that charade and I think the question now is how everybody reacts um, when he was first informed of this at a press conference uh, day before yesterday the Secretary General of the UN Antonio Guterres who's been a wonderful leader on climate stuff just said I can't believe it I don't want to believe it and <laughs> I'm sure that's right. It's highly embarrassing. But I also think that it may open up real possibilities for um, people to at least understand the dynamic at play on planet Earth right now. Um, There's a huge battle being waged between renewable energy, now the cheapest form of power on our planet, and the fossil fuel industry, which has extraordinary residual power because we're all, you know, we've built an entire world economy on the back of fossil fuel. And the question is, how fast are we going to change? The scientific community is telling us we need to change very, very fast to have any hope of reigning in climate change at all. And we're capable of changing pretty fast because sun and wind are the cheapest ways now to produce power. But the fossil fuel industry is doing everything in its power to prevent that change from happening, or at least to slow it down, to extend their business model. There was actually a second set of documents that came out yesterday from the Center for Climate Reporting that were even more remarkable, I thought. And they showed that uh, Dubai's big brother, Saudi Arabia, um, has (laughs) been embarked on a full-scale campaign to do things that are so cartoonishly villainous that it's almost impossible to imagine. They've setting up deals to flood the market in poor parts of the world with cheap, highly polluting cars so that they'll blunt the advance of electric vehicles and be able to sell more gas. They're trying to resurrect supersonic air transportation strictly on the grounds that it uses three times as much fuel as even the wasteful uh, airplanes that's, that are bringing everybody to Dubai this week, um, you know, on and on and on. So I think it's always good when we understand things for what they are. Um, it's clear that we now understand that sunlight can power the planet. Now we'll see if this other kind of sunlight, this sort of transparency can open up what had otherwise been negotiations unlikely to go anywhere. So as the world, at least the industrial world, Europe and the United States and Australia and New Zealand and other advanced economies start to try and wean themselves off fossil fuels, the plot that Saudi Arabia is engaged in is to hook the poorer countries, in particular Africa, on its harmful product, right? And are they going to get away with it? I mean, the petro states uh, have an alliance, uh, after all. OPEC, too, is an alliance between uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia. And 
Russia is entirely dependent upon oil and gas. So these are where the, the battle lines are drawn, at least. Is that, in a sense... Well, let's be, no, let's be clear here. <laughs> the biggest hydrocarbon exporter on planet Earth is the United States. Um, we didn't sell oil and gas abroad until a decade ago. There was a congressional ban on it. But in the last 10 years, we've powered to the front. We've got so much fracked gas in particular lying around in the U.S. that the only hope for this industry is to sell it abroad. And they've, the government has let them set up one export terminal after another So uh, and make deals all across Asia in particular to sell this LNG. Um, it's disastrous. Uh, uh, it extends the life of the fossil fuel industry for another 40 years. That's why groups are coalescing now to demand that the Biden administration put a stop to new export licenses for LNG. It's probably the biggest step that any government in the world could take. But the, the basic underlying point is, as we begin to come to the end of the fossil fuel age, those places that have large amounts of fossil fuel are desperate to make sure that they sell them and get their money out of the ground. Just as scientists are desperately determined to make sure that all that carbon stays in the ground so it doesn't raise the temperature anymore. And that's the, that's the dynamic that's supposed to be settled somehow in things like this cop. But when the cop itself has been corrupted, um, that gets, well, we'll see if it gets harder to do, or maybe now that it's been exposed, maybe it'll get a little easier. Well, maybe that's why Biden decided not to go and is instead <clears throat> sending Vice President Harris. Do you think do you think that this revelation of this hypocrisy and this flagrant cynicism of these shakedoms and, and Saudi Arabia, and, and of course, let's not let the U.S. off the hook, as you just pointed out, that in itself... Could that spur a movement? I mean, the mo you've been the, the leader, if not one of the leaders of this movement from day one, a first warning about the dangers of global warming. Well, I think the place where you're really seeing that movement emerge right now in this country is around this question of LNG. And tomorrow, people will deliver 250,000 signatures to the Department of Energy demanding that they stop granting these export licenses. And I believe it'll escalate from there if we don't get some good response from the Biden administration. Um, you know, <laughs> what can we do but try to weigh in and help in this fight? Um, and, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's why Biden's not going. I, although I do think that it, it, it's uncomfortable for him. He's done a lot on the demand side, the let's call it the clean energy side of the, this equation. The passage of the Inflation Reduction Act is spurring rapid development in batteries, solar panels, heat pumps, on and on and on. That's good. He can credibly claim to have done more to promote clean energy than any president before him. But that's going to be erased if he can't also bring himself to grapple with the dirty energy side here and to say no to the fossil fuel industry. And by far the most important place to do that and the easiest place to do that is around this question of exports. Um, you know, we don't want to be the play the role of, you know, this the same role that Colombia has traditionally played in the narcotics trade um, supplier to the world. We don't want to be that in the hydrocarbon trade. Exxon wants to be that, Chevron like to be that, you know, on and on. But as a country, we should not want to be making the worst problem that humans have ever wandered into worse. Well, as your article at your Substack, The Crucial Years, UAE Corruption Beyond Description Means COP28, like it over before it begins, points out that what's happening now with this cynical move by the oil producers of the world to sort of dump their deadly product on uh, the third world and in particular Africa is akin to what the tobacco companies did when they were facing legal losses in the US they pivoted pivoted to expand their markets in Asia instead so yes and the, the only the only difference here is that that was completely venal this is not only venal it's suicidal because the secondhand smoke from carbon emissions you know uh, is 
diffuses in the atmosphere in the course of a week, we, we raise the temperature everywhere when we do something as cynical as we're doing at the moment. So even the oil companies, the executives and their families suffer? Is that yes, something that they're I aware think, of? Well, they may or they certainly they're aware of it. If we now know from great investigative reporting that the fossil fuel industry has known everything there is to know about climate change for decades. My guess is that their top executives think that if they can make enough money, that will insulate them and their families from this problem, this crisis. And it may for a little while, uh, but man, the the world that they are building is not a world that anyone's going to want to live on. Well, Joe Biden's, of course, his climate agenda was sabotaged by Senator Joe Manchin. Yes. And now Joe Manchin could sabotage Biden's chances of being reelected, by running as a third-party candidate with this no-labels front that's getting on all the ballots. So Yes, Joe Biden had that. I mean, Joe Manchin had the distinction of taking more money from the fossil fuel industry than anyone else in Washington, which is not an easy contest to win, but he won it. So that's been his motivation from day one. So he's in the pantheon of these villains like Sultan al-Jabbar, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one will say that in the end, he cast the decisive vote for the IRA once it had been larded with gifts to the oil industry. And in the end, I think Manchin was unwilling to have his only contribution to human history be that he had blocked any effort to deal with climate change. But the oil industry got their money's worth from him uh, in the ways that he watered down and larded with loopholes that IRA act. So your article mentions the fact that uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres made a trip to Antarctica in in the run-up to the COP28. Uh, Given that he's in shock at at the revelation about what the host of the COP28 is actually up to um, and whether or not he, with the publicity that this uh, is getting, starting with the BBC and others, are picking up on uh, this leaked document, what did he learn from Antarctica? Well, I mean, what he learned is that (laughs) it's melting fast. (laughs) Um, A trip to the Antarctic is depressing these days. It remains incredibly beautiful. And, you know, it's one of the, I'm very, very happy that I've been there in my life and um, seen it um, before it was badly, badly altered. But now that alteration is in full swing. And so I'm sure Guterres came back determined even more determined to make this UN process work and that he was greeted on his return. The first news he got was this BBC story about uh, the guy who was running his climate talks being a corrupt and venal uh, fraudster. Man, that must have been a double kick in the teeth. So what's the answer here, though, in terms of obviously... You know, one of the old adages in politics is the, the, the bad guys have got the money, but we got the numbers. Does that apply to this issue in terms yeah. of the grassroots yeah. activism? As long as we keep organizing, we have a shot. Um, so, you know, 350.org, which I helped start, now is organized something like 20,000 demonstrations in every country on Earth except North Korea. In the last couple of years, I've gotten to work in organizing old people like me. Uh, We have a new operation called Third Act for people over 60, and it's become one of the most militant parts of the climate fight. We took on the big banks that fund the fossil fuel industry and had a huge day of action this year where we shut down in 100 cities those banks, um, mostly with old people in rocking chairs blocking their doors. Uh, the Times called it the rocking chair rebellion. So there's a lot of activism underway. I'd be quite heartened by what we're seeing around us were it not for the fact that we have to get this all done fast. Climate change is a timed test. That may be the single most salient thing about it. So we don't have an infinite amount of time. And the fossil fuel industry just needs delay. That's their friend. And delay is easy to get in our political system. So you're right. We need to push harder, bigger numbers, more effectively all the time. 
that's what we're trying to do. Uh, uh, if you come across, you know, tell your grandparents about us at Third Act, um, and and we need people joining in. So the geezers and the kids are getting together, and that's a great, that's great coalition. That's right. It, it is a good coalition. It's easy for people the age of grandchildren and grandparents to work together pretty easily, and that's what we're doing. So what happens uh, when I have to go to the pump to fill up my car, even though, I, I, I mean, I have a, a hybrid, but, you know, I can't afford an electric car, <laughs> a Tesla in particular, given how odious the owner of Tesla is. What do I do? That's the dilemma that everybody faces. Is there any way at that impact point that we, we can have some kind of consciousness raising? Well, you know, at the pump, it's a little late, but the good news is that even if you don't want to buy a Tesla, and I share your feeling, you can, if you need a car, you can do what I did. I bought a Kia EV uh, a few years ago. They're now cheaper than the average new car in this country. Um, or you can take advantage of the other amazing piece of technology, especially where you are, that's emerging in our, uh, our world right now, and that's the electric bicycle. Um, they're really revolutionizing transportation in city after city around the world. Um, they have most of the advantages of a car and most of the pleasures of a bicycle. <laughs> and so people are, uh, are cottoning on. That'd be my advice. Well, apparently there are more electric bikes being sold by a huge factor than electric cars. It's, it's sort of gone under the radar, hasn't it? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. But if you get to the rest of the world, you won't be under the radar anymore. Um, you know, uh, uh, across Asia, people are buying them in huge numbers. They just make sense. So just in terms of, I mentioned uh, this 2024 election year coming up, uh, Bill McKibben, and of course, as we mentioned earlier, Biden's not going to go to COP28 and sending Vice President Harris instead. Should he run on this existential issue? I mean, you've got the other existential issue uh, in this campaign, given that Trump is a yes. prototype uh, fascist. To democracy, you know, yes. You've got the struggle are... for democracies and then the struggle to save the planet. Is that too much messaging? No, I think it's the twin message that he very much needs. Um, but in order to credibly do it, he has to, I think, at a minimum, take on this LNG export stuff because it's becoming a bigger issue by the hour and he really needs to be able to deal with it. Um, but that's in that in fact, I have to get off the phone now to go do some work of myself on this issue. But I think that's where the to use an, you know, uh, uh, auto age metaphor, that's where the rubber hits the road here. Um, and if Biden delivers on this then he'll credibly be able to say not only has he done as much on the clean energy side of this equation as any president, he's done as much on the dirty energy side, and that'll be a good way to rally, especially young people, heading into what's going to be an awfully tough election. Well, Bill McKibben, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. You have a good one, Ian. Take care. You, you too. And again, I've been speaking with Bill McKibben, the founder of the environmental organization 350.org, who was among the first to have warned of the dangers of global warming. He's a Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College and the author of more than a dozen books, including the bestsellers The End of Nature, Earth and Deep Economy. And his latest book is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? And he has an article that he substack the crucial years. UAE corruption beyond description means COP28 is likely over before it begins. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into polls that indicate a dramatic shift among young Americans away from support for Israel to sympathy for the plight of the Palestinians as a result of the war in Gaza. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Shibri Talhami, the Anwar Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, the Director of the University of Maryland's Critical Issues Poll, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has advised every U.S. administration from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama, serving as advisor to the U.S. mission to the United Nations and as a senior advisor to the United States Department of State. He's the author of a number of books, including The Stakes, America in the Middle East, The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion and the Reshaping of the Middle East, and The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine? And he has an article at Brookings, Israel loses much of the support it gained after Hamas attack. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shibli Telhami. My, my pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Shibli. And we don't know exactly what's going to happen uh, now that the pause or the truce in the war in Gaza is over. And at this point, the hostages are expected to be released today, still haven't been released and. Apparently, Israel is open to having a longer pause to get more hostages out. So what's the latest that you're hearing, Shibley? Well, I think at this point, it's more likely than not to have an extension, um, whether it be a two-day or four-day extension. Uh, the Qatari mediators are very optimistic that it's going to happen. And the Israeli government uh, is now meeting to consider an extension. Uh, I think everyone is looking for pauses, expectations uh, that more hostages will be released. Uh, so for now, at least, uh, it doesn't look like the bombings will resume. Uh, but obviously, this could happen very quickly. And what do you think is in it for the Hamas, if indeed, as Netanyahu has promised, that he'll resume the bombing with a vengeance? So why are they agreeing to release all these hostages. Of course, they're not going to release the military hostages, but what's in it for them? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm actually surprised that people are surprised. They have said from the beginning, that is Hamas, from the beginning, that uh, their immediate um, uh, you know, purpose, one of their immediate purposes was to get a prisoner exchange. Uh, uh, a lot of people don't understand how important prisoner exchange is to Palestinians. Uh, obviously, it's very important to Israelis. These hostages uh, were taken, taken brutally on October 7th. Uh, many of them uh, are uh, civilians, including children and women. And obviously, their families and loved ones want them back, and the whole country wants them back. And the sooner they're released, the better. What is less understood is how important the prisoner issue is on the Palestinian side and what, how Hamas is trying to capture that because it knows that there isn't a single Palestinian, including people who don't like Hamas, who don't want to see it succeed, who doesn't care about the prisoners. The prisoner issue um, is important for three main reasons. The first is the scale of the problem. Uh, remember, uh, over the course of the occupation, um, nearly a million Palestinians have been held by Israel, including many without charges, including children and women, as we are seeing now in the exchanges. Um, there isn't a family uh, that hasn't been affected. Remember, this is a population of 5 million people between the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, so every family has been affected, and, and this is a personal one for so many of them. The second reason why it resonates deeply is it goes to the core of the occupation. That is, it brings home the injustice uh, that human rights organizations call apartheid in the West Bank, where you have, a, uh, on the one hand, Palestinians um, who can be arrested at will at any given uh, hour of the day, any day of the week, and held without charges. And ultimately, most get who are charged get almost 100% conviction rate in military courts with, uh, without recourse. Uh, whereas right next door, you have settlers who are living there illegally under international law, who obviously have civil rights and, and face uh, are, are rarely charged in any case, and those who are charged are rarely convicted. So it, it brings that home deeply uh, to the Palestinians. And the third is that it brings home the reality of the, uh, the, the violence of occupation. We tend to think of violence just what's happening now, which is huge eruptions on a scale uh, that obviously is breaking our hearts, both um, in terms of the Israeli civilian casualties and the Palestinian civilian casualties. But of course, 
occupation is brutally violent, even when the guns are not fired. So it brings home the fact that an Israeli military can go into a home at 2 a.m. and arrest someone and take them. And it could be a child, a 14-year-old, like the one who was just released uh, yesterday. And um, and so for Palestinians, it just brings all of that home. It's a very emotional issue. So Hamas always capitalizes on that when there are release, even as Israel has taken more uh, prisoners. Uh, uh, they're releasing, you know, uh, something like 30 for every 10, one for three. But of course, since the occupation, since uh, October 7, the horrific Hamas attack, Israel has already arrested about 3,000 Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. Most of them on uh, without charges. So uh, while it isn't doesn't really reduce the number of Palestinians that are held, unless there's a a bigger deal, uh, all for all, or something along these lines, it still brings that home. So it, it, Hamas, uh, you know, uh, obviously benefits from it, uh, but they also wanted relief for the civilian population. Remember, you know, we think of Hamas versus the population. Uh, I mean, of course, a lot of the uh, uh, Hamas members have relatives or immediate family and other people uh, who are hurt or killed or suffering or homeless. Uh, so everyone wants to see release, uh, relief. Um, there was a humanitarian disaster. Everybody benefits from a little bit of a uh, pause with uh, uh, humanitarian supplies going in. Uh, Hamas may also benefit militarily. It's hard to know how much um, this helps them militarily. Uh, but a pause helps um, helps everyone, of course, in the short term. Uh, but um, obviously it could all erupt again on the scale that we have seen before, if not worse. So what you're telling us, Shibley, is clearly that Hamas is gaining a lot of support on the West Bank because uh, this is where all of these prisoners come from. They're not coming from Gaza. So, uh, well, both of them, uh, both in Gaza and the West Bank, benefit, yes, for sure. Right, but most of the prisoners are, are from the West Bank, aren't they? Yes. So uh, what's the situation there? My understanding is that the notion of a second front opening up with Hezbollah is much less likely than a second front opening up on the West Bank. And I believe Israel's sending in a lot of military reinforcements because the West Bank is a tinderbox. Um, the West Bank is a tinderbox, and obviously the Palestinian Authority is not interested in an explosion. So that still, that's why Palestinians have called it, you know, subcontractor for Israel security. Uh, so the oddity of the Palestinian Authority is that it had lost support within the West Bank and, and Gaza among Palestinians, but it is values increased internationally as people want the Palestinian interlocutor and they don't want Hamas. So its uh, stock goes up internationally, but it goes down uh, domestically. Um, certainly it could erupt in the West Bank and it has been erupting. The Israelis yesterday, uh, you know, uh, laid siege to uh, Jenin, the city of Jenin. There were several uh, casualties. Um, uh, and as I said, there have been uh, increased settler attacks uh, that has uh, taken place. There are about, it's estimated uh, there are over um, 250 Palestinians who have been killed since October 7 in the West Bank. Uh, um, over 2,000 have been wounded. Over 3,000 have been arrested. So uh, this is kind of what's happening under the radar screen or a bit under the radar screen because everybody has been focused on Gaza. It could still erupt on a bigger scale. But with Hezbollah, obviously, it's a completely different world game because um, that could usher in a, uh, an escalation that could draw the U.S. in. Uh, one of the problems has been is that you, the president of the United States clearly didn't think his posture through from day one. His total embrace of the Israeli agenda and allowing the Israelis to define what is self-defense and what is not, knowing that they have members of the government whose aims do not coincide with American interests or American values. Uh, was a mistake because um, escalation is not in America's interest and the pursuit of an escalation in Gaza and resumption of bombing on a large scale could still draw Hezbollah in, which could ultimately bring the U.S. in and bring Iran in, something that some members of the right-wing Israeli government want, uh, uh, including the prime minister who had in the past hoped to draw the U.S. into a fight with Iran something that's not in America's national interest. So obviously the U.S. is now being extremely careful 
to uh, manage this so it doesn't expand. Uh, there's been uh, increasing pressure on the Israelis to not uh, escalate uh, to the point of drawing Hezbollah and Iran in. Uh, and I think the U.S. Um, uh, is now trying to manage it, but I think the initial mistake was done uh, with the with the complete embrace and not fully understanding that it puts you on an escalation process that you cannot fully control. Well, surely Biden must have known what Netanyahu's plan was to try and drag... And this is not happening just because of this war in Gaza. This has been going on for the longest time that Netanyahu's wanted, wanted to drag the U.S. in to finish off Iran uh, while they take care of the Palestinians. He must have known that. I mean, in fact, in Obama's last press conference that he had, which was off the record on the last day he was in the White House, he said the biggest problem that we face, when one of the reporter asked him, what do you think the biggest problems we face in the future? And he said the biggest problem we face is Putinism. And they said, what do you mean by Putinism? He said, well, Putinism is, is not just Putin. It's Erdogan, Orban, and Netanyahu. So I just... I'm, I understand that Biden, when he was vice president, tried to convince Obama to embrace the Israelis as he has, because if you embrace them, then you have influence over them. And Obama didn't take that advice. And of course, Biden has done it in spades. So I guess the question to you then, Shibley, is, is it working? Is Biden, because of the polls that you've conducted, well, well, seems like he's way. suffering. It seems like he's being hung out to dry. I know this has been reported, and and you know clearly, um, you know I'm I'm also uh, I'm finishing up a book with several colleagues on the uh, the Obama, uh, Trump, and Biden presidencies, and we have interviewed people from the Obama administration. We we were aware of uh, you know differences uh, on Israel between uh, Biden as vice president and and the people around the president, President Obama, and Obama himself on this issue, and obviously. This question about um, hugging Israel and then the best way to keep them close and you can influence them uh, was said to be part of it. But there's more to it than that. I mean, you go back to the 1980s, 1982 is just something that came out as people re-examining what, uh, who Biden is now, because uh, I think his posture has shocked a lot of people, uh, shocked a lot of people in terms of his toleration of seeing so many thousands of children killed and so many hundreds of thousands of people displaced uh, and not even uh, condemning uh, these actions that are obviously in violation of international humanitarian law. It shocked a lot of people. And people are now revisiting who is this man, Joe Biden, uh, obviously young Democrats who are walking away from him or critical of him and may not vote for him based on this posture, trying to ask who is this man. And we discover there are lots of things that he said, including in 1982 when Israel invaded uh, Lebanon, where he, uh, the, the Prime Minister of Israel, Van Menachem Begin, the right-wing government of Israel, the right-wing Prime Minister of Israel, uh, said that when he uh, came to the Senate, uh, this young Senator Biden uh, seemed to uh, uh, embrace Israel, attacking more civilians in Lebanon. Uh, and and it was kind of surprised that uh, he was, he seemed on this issue to the right of the Prime Minister of Israel. Um, now, the you know, the the, the 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 president himself may think that this is a, a the right thing to do. It might be he, he has already called himself a Zionist in terms of his support uh, for Israel. But if in fact the idea is to use this as leverage to restrain the Israelis, think about this. He went to Israel. He talked to the Israelis on day one and offered them support. That was a good thing. That was the right thing. The Israelis faced a horrific attack. On October 7, they were vulnerable. They lost a lot of people, including many civilians. Many were taken hostages. And that was a moment where he should show support for them and say, we're going to be with you. We'll defend you. Uh, if you need uh, our help, we will provide you our help. But then beyond that, when you go and you, you give full license to what they do, knowing that they're going to have vengeance, knowing that some of them have aims, including the far-right people who have aims that conflict with America's interests and America's values, if you're embracing that, uh, then you're opening up, uh, uh, you know, a, a whole host of things uh, that impact your own interests. And if you're 
going to use the leverage that you had in the first week or the first few days uh, to say, now let me offer restraint. Uh, would the president consider it a success knowing what the results have been? What are the results? Well, the results are uh, tens of thousands of uh, you know, uh, tons of bombings, equivalent of over two nuclear bombs dropped on a small uh, place over six weeks, generating thousands of casualties, including thousands of children and women, uh, including hundreds of thousands of uh, perhaps 80% of the population displaced, 50% uh, of uh, the buildings damaged or, 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 or uh, destroyed. Is that the kind of outcome that he was prepared to live with. And if he wasn't prepared to live with it, then why didn't the embrace help him stop it from happening? So he would have to answer, are you prepared to live with this outcome? Otherwise, haven't you failed in preventing this outcome? That's the problem the president faces. And they're using this only as a rationalization. See, we're now getting some hostages out. Well, the hostage offer was on the table from day one, with or without the fighting. So this is not an accomplishment uh, in and of itself in comparison to the cause. Obviously, everyone wants the hostages out, all of them, not uh, without condition. This is the humanitarian thing to do. Uh, uh, they should not have been taken in the first place. Uh, Hamas is pointing out to the fact that Israel is, of course, is holding a lot of people without charges, including children. Uh, and so the exchange is helping them. But nonetheless, how could the president consider the devastation that has taken place in Gaza a success? How could he consider that strategy of early embrace to have worked for him unless he's prepared to live with what has happened? And I hope he, he's not prepared to live with it. Well, as you poll, the poll that you did, Shibley, points out that he's bleeding support from young Democratic voters, which he cannot afford. And since you've been a senior advisor to the State Department, what are you hearing from the people over at State? Because the U.S. has no credibility anymore, as far as I can tell, in the Middle East as an honest broker. I mean, diplomatically, we're just dead in the well, water. Well, forget right? about the honest broker. It's not even about honest broker anymore. I mean, the U.S. You know, had not been seen as an honest broker for a long time. It's about even just considering whether the U.S. could be trusted uh, whether um, anything that it says about a rules-based international order or, or uh, trying to get support for its effort to defeat Russia in Ukraine, which is, a, which is the right thing to do, obviously, something I've supported the president and, and his efforts uh, with regard to Ukraine to the point that I'm now on, the, on Putin's uh, uh, list of sanctioned people for some reason. Um, so the, the issue is whether... Uh, the rest of the Middle East will 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 trust him, not not to, as a as a broker, but even trust the word of the U.S. or what the U.S. Uh, stands for on on things like a rules based international order. And I think that this particular episode has not only angered people in the Arab and Muslim country, the world. I think it's a it's a a, a paradigm forming moment. I think this is uh, imprinted on the consciousness of a young generation that is likely to last uh, uh, for years, for years to come, in a way that is going to impact um, America's credibility, but also, unfortunately, possibly lead to blowback. Well, Shibli Talhami, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Shibli Talhami, the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, the Director of the University of Maryland's Critical Issues Poll, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has advised every U.S. administration from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama, serving as advisor to the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, and as a senior advisor to the United States Department of State. And he's the author of a number of books, including The Stakes, America in the Middle East, The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion, and The Reshaping of the Middle East, and The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine? And he has an article at Brookings, Israel Loses Much of the Support It Gained After Hamas Attack. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the remaining Koch brother, Charles Koch, is throwing his $5 billion political slush fund behind trying to elect Nikki Haley president in 2024. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Chara torres Spellacy, who is a Brennan Center Fellow and a Professor of Law at Stetson University College of Law, who has testified before Congress and has helped draft legislation and Supreme Court briefs. She is the author of Corporate Citizen, an argument for the separation of corporation and state and political brands. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chara torres Spellacy. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Koch brothers are putting, or the Koch brother, there's only one surviving uh, who just turned 88. They're now going to back uh, Nikki Haley with their considerable resources. And indeed, they have something like $5 billion that they are channeling into politics using exploiting a loophole that allows them to avoid paying capital gains or gift taxes, um, and of course they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars lobbying to create that very loophole that enables them to flood money into uh, politics, and they're using the model uh, created by Leonard Leo, who was able to exploit this loophole in order to get $1.6 billion, which he's about to deploy for right-wing causes. So how can this be matched? I mean, what can the other side, for whatever the other side is, deal with this in our politics, uh, since this is clearly not a level playing field? Oh, that's an excellent question. I mean, grassroots reaching out to individuals directly through social media, um, through traditional media, getting the message out uh, that your vote is important. Uh, it, it's probably going to be very difficult for the left to match the right dollar for dollar, but I think they can uh, be competitive if they reach out to voters directly. So do you think that they can simply throw so much money at Nikki Haley that she could win, even though Donald Trump is clearly the front runner. That's another excellent question. So the Coke Network uh, has been a big spender for a very, very long time. Uh, when there were two Coke brothers, uh, they put an enormous amount of resources into building up not just a political spending arm but also influencing how academics uh, think about uh, policy. They supported the, the Federalist Society, which is the feeder for uh, right-wing judges getting onto the federal bench. And in the last couple of federal elections, uh, they have been in the top 16 uh, spenders. So their money has been at work in American politics for a very long time. Whether their money alone can propel Nikki Haley to the presidency, I think is an open question. Uh, she doesn't have the same base of supporters that Trump still appears to have. But given all of the legal peril that Trump is in, uh, it looks like the Koch network is betting on perhaps a criminal conviction in, in Trump's case or some other event that would break the, the tie between Trump and his voting base. Well, it would seem to me that 
Joe Biden's likely to win the presidency based upon the fact that a majority of Americans, assuming that you you know you, <laughs> majorities count anymore, given you know gerrymandering and, and assault on on the election process and and the machinery itself, but assuming that this election is clean like the last one was, even though Trump of course said it wasn't. Assuming that Biden is elected, I imagine he'll be elected largely because of people voting against Trump as opposed to for Biden. But if there's an alternative to Trump in Nikki Haley, it could be very damaging for Biden. And maybe that will give a majority of people an alternative because nobody is much, as far as the polls indicate, nobody's thrilled with the idea of a rematch between Biden and Trump. I think one of the big open questions in the election that we're about to go through is who is going to win the Republican nomination. Right now, Trump is way ahead in polling, but polling does not mean the same as what people do when they get into a ballot box. So depending on how his criminal cases unfold in the new year, he may well get the Republican nomination for presidency, and that would be the matchup between Trump and Biden. Uh, I, I would sort of doubt that Nikki Haley would run as a third-party candidate in the general election. I guess if she has enough money, she could. Uh, but that is more likely to split the Republican vote than to split the Democratic vote. So... What do you think then, if the Koch brothers are the smart money and the fact that they're so rich would indicate at least they know how to make money, what are they banking on then? What's the smart money banking on with uh, Nikki Haley? Well, she is a formidable uh, candidate. She has executive experience, both from being uh, a governor of a state and uh, being the uh, ambassador to the U.N., uh, which gives her some international experience. Uh, she's young. She doesn't have all of the baggage that Trump has. There are lots of things that make her a very attractive candidate. And I think that may be why the Koch uh, network has decided to place their bet with her. And others, apparently, other right-wing billionaires are also doing the same thing. So let's talk about how this loophole was allowed in the first place. Apparently, in 2015, former Congressman Peter Roscombe, a Republican of Illinois, proposed the Fair Treatment of All Gifts Act, and that was heavily lobbied with money from the Koch brothers. And, of course, it's paid off handsomely, and it was apparently used, uh, this loophole, which I guess became law, I'm not quite sure when, it was used by Leonard Leo, who, according to ProPublica, avoided as much as $400 million in taxes when he made his deal with Barry Said to get the $1.6 billion into the Marble Trust. So that was done as a gift without the, the tax. So Leo's trust made $1.65 billion from the sale of... Barry Sides company, Triplight, which was purchased by Eaton. So how did this happen? I mean, uh, do you have just one enabler of a plutocrat in Congress is able to pull off a stunt like that? I mean, is it what's happening here? People aren't looking at the small print? Well, I think the relationship between money and politics and, and policy outcomes is very complex. However, um, after the Supreme Court decided in 2010 in Citizens United to allow corporations to spend an unlimited amount of money in our politics, that didn't just free up corporations to spend unlimited amounts. It also seemed to embolden incredibly wealthy individuals to also spend more in our elections. And one of the structures that has been used to make dark money over the past decade is you have um, 
typically a either a corporation or a very rich individual, and they will then give to a 501c4 or a 501c6. A 501c4 is a social welfare organization. A 501c6 is a trade association. And once you give to that nonprofit, usually the public can't tell where that money is coming from, which is why we call it dark money. And then it's that C3 or C6, or sorry, the C4 or C6, pardon me, that spends in politics, but they don't list their donors. And the way that the gift tax used to apply here is if that individual was giving to the C4, that in the past law would have triggered a gift tax that was paid by the donor. But uh, after lobbying, that law changed. And so the wealthy can give to a C4, C6 that is going to spend in politics and it no longer triggers that gift tax. Well, apparently now I've just found the relevant piece of information here, Chara, that the, t- the Koch lobbying effort paid off with Roskam's legislation that was quietly included in a must-pass omnibus spending bill in December of 2015. So that's how it's done. You find yourself a hireling in Congress and he slips the bill in into a must-pass omnibus bill and the rest is history, right? Yeah, um, I mean, that sort of talks to a different type of dysfunction that has become endemic in Congress, which is they don't do the normal budgeting process anymore where you pass single appropriations bills. Instead, we uh, lurch from continuing resolution to continuing resolution with the threat of the entire federal government shutting down. Uh, we're going to face another set of these circumstances in the new year. And what that does is it puts an enormous amount of pressure on Congress to pass that continuing resolution. And it becomes a source of mischief because if you can slip something into these big must-pass bills, then it doesn't get the public scrutiny that it deserves. So... In terms of leveling the playing field, then, we started out with the asymmetry that the $5 billion that the Koch brother is uh, about to deploy into politics and the $1.6 billion that Leonard Leo has in his right-wing slush fund. Grassroots simply can't do that. I mean, I guess, in many ways, Bernie Sanders, I think, was the first to demonstrate the power of grassroots fundraising. But even at the best of times, it pales in comparison to the Koch brothers, right? Do you have any idea of the who who has raised the most grassroots money and what the totals would be compared to the five billion and the one point six billion that Leo has? So I, I don't have those figures right at my fingertips, but uh, I guess the other thing to remember is that Bernie Sanders has been in Congress for a really long time, and he's never played this big money game. So there are still paths to being uh, in power, being in government that does not require you to genuflect to these billionaires. Well, there used to be a senator from Wisconsin who was continually re-elected and he gave out the Golden Fleece Award as well for egregious boondoggling. And he, he limited his campaign spending to $500 per campaign and yet kept getting reelected. I'm talking about William Proxmire. So is there any way that you can go back to the days of William Proxmire? Well, I think um, AOC has a very interesting model. She calls it Netflix for democracy. She encourages her donors to give small but recurring donations so that she can budget, but it doesn't cost her supporters all that much money, which is sort of similar to the $10 a month that you would pay for a streaming service. 
So I think there are other models out there. Well, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Alrighty. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Shara Torres Spellacy, who is a Brennan Center Fellow and the Professor of Law at Stetson University College of Law, who has testified before Congress and helped draft legislation and Supreme Court briefs. She's the author of Corporate Citizen, An Argument for the Separation of Corporation and State and Political Brands. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.